0: Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to this um, LSE uh, public lecture. Let me first introduce myself. My name is uh, Professor Michael Cox. Uh, I am in the Department of International Relations here at the London School of Economics. I also happen to be uh, co-director of a centre for strategy and diplomacy here uh, called Ideas. Uh, I'm delighted uh, to welcome you here, uh, a very full audience, and I hope lots of good... Uh, questions uh, at the end. I'm equally delighted uh, to welcome our distinguished speaker here tonight, Ali A. Uh, Alawi. Um, Our speaker was born in Baghdad in uh, 1947, um, but his family left uh, Iraq uh, following the 1958 revolution, 11 years later. Uh, Our speaker Uh, was then educated uh, in England and I'm now taking away one of his best lines, he tells me. I went through some of his background and saw uh, earlier interviews he gave. Uh, He may have been an Anglophile, but the English schooling system clearly didn't do him very much good because according to one note I saw, he plotted through the year 1964 to get out of England and get to the United States, which he did in 1964. I'll also tell another story that he managed to plot to get back to to London in the year of 1968, which for some of you, of course, will be a rather crucial year. And he came to the LSE, which was then full of people who were not desperately trying to join Goldman Sachs, but were desperately trying to make world revolution. Uh, The world revolution, of course, uh, actually had some impact on your education at the LSE because he said he didn't get much of an education at the LSE because the place was occupied And he left in March 1969 because the LSE was closed. He went back to the United States again. Clearly, world historical events have constantly followed you and had an impact on your life, Speaker Went back to the United States, worked at Harvard and at the World Bank, and in 1977 returned to the Middle East once again, and a few years later back to London where he currently lives and also lives in in Baghdad. Uh, He was engaged in investment banking, but always I think hankered after becoming or becoming a real and genuine as you've become I think a genuine academic given the quality of your publications. He then made a major mistake and went to Oxford, but at least (laughs) it wasn't occupied uh, when when you went there. He formed part of the Iraqi opposition in exile and returned to Iraq uh, following the war in 2003 and held three posts as Minister of Trade, Defence and uh, Finance and finally left In, well, I mean, without government, I would say more precisely, in June uh, 2006. He's been working at Princeton and is now moving to the Kennedy School at Harvard. Uh, I would say that certainly one of the, if not the best book on the American British decision uh, over Iraq was written by you uh, in Yale, published by Yale in 2007 The Occupation of Iraq. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful story, and it tells a terrifically detailed and complicated story. It doesn't simplify the issues, as many, I think, of the analysis of the decision to invade Iraq have done. And I think once again, with your book on the crisis of Islamic civilization, you've engaged with some tough issues, and I think come up with some pretty tough conclusions, which be mm-hmm. uncomfortable for very many people. It's wonderful to have you back here at the LSE. Uh, as you will see, we are occupied. But not by revolutionary (laughs) Trotskyists, but by listening speakers and listeners who will want to listen to what you have to say. So, could we all join together to welcome Ali Alawi to speak on his book (laughs) in search
1: of the planet?
2: Thank you very much, Professor Cox, for this very kind introduction. Uh, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I've entitled my talk In Search of Islam's Civilization but uh, I'll try to give it a personal personal angle uh, mainly because I think it's rather difficult to uh, encapsulate such a huge uh, global universal civilization as Islam in, in an hour or 45 minutes so I will approach it from the way I experienced it, the encounter I had with Islam, and what led me to write this book, The Crisis of Islamic Civilization. Uh, I was born into a mildly observant Muslim family in Iraq. At that time, the 1950s, secularism was ascendant among the political, cultural, and intellectual elites of the Middle East. It appeared to be only a matter of time before Islam would lose whatever hold it still had on the Muslim world. Even that term, Muslim world, was unusual as Muslims were more likely to to identify themselves by the national, ethnic, or ideological affinities than with their religion. To an impressionable child, it was clear that society was decoupling from Islam. Though religion was a mandatory course in school, nobody taught us there was a prayer or expected us to fast during Ramadan. We memorized the shorter verses of the uh, Quran, but the holy book itself was kept on the shelf or in drawers, mostly on red. The elderly still made the pilgrimage to Mecca to atone for their transgressions in preparation inevitable end, more I think as an insurance policy than an act of piety. (laughs) I I don't recall ever coming across the word jihad in a contemporary uh, context. The political rhetoric of the day focused more on things like Arab destiny and anti-imperialism. A bit of religious fervor popped up in 1956 during the Suez crisis as Cairo radio blared out martial songs calling for divine support against the Anglo-French Israeli invasion. But that was about it. Women, not only in my own family, but throughout the urban middle classes, and not only in Baghdad, but throughout the Muslim world, if you read memoirs of the Times, uh, did not wear uh, hijab or distinctively Islamic clothing had long ceased to do that even well before the year in which I was born and my only personal connection with the with the pre-modern past was my uh, grandfather who continued to wear the dress of a traditional merchant the dress of dignified robes and turbans apart from religious holidays there were few public observances of the rituals of Islam the rites of Muharram, which is a Shia Muslim practice to commemorate the martyrdom of the Prophet's grandson, uh, was celebrated sometimes wildly, but we were advised to stay far away. Such ceremonies were considered unbecoming of genteel folk who preferred to hold semi-literary suarez to remember the passion of the martyr. Modernity was flooding in everywhere, Cinemas and snack bars, cabarets and country clubs, freely flowing alcohol and mixed sex parties. Baghdad was turning into Babylon. It was not much different as memoirs of the time would testify in Cairo, Casablanca, Damascus, Istanbul, Jakarta, Karachi, and Tehran. I think if you meet anybody of that, that age group, I think they would have normally similar experiences especially if they come from the middle middle classes. In 1958, we had a revolution, as uh, Professor Cox mentioned, in Iraq, and uh, we were on the losing side. So uh, we had to leave. A number of my own family were, were then imprisoned. And uh, I ended up in a boarding school here. And whatever little interest I had in religion was ground down by my <laughs> exposure to British boarding school (laughs) I think I believe things have changed now but in those days you had to go to chapel and endure endless formulaic sermons and they left me with I must say a a distaste for organized religion but in hindsight I can see that the seeds of my own interest in Islam may have been laid during this time. I instinctively reacted to the slights against Islam that ran throughout the curriculum, the depiction of the crusaders as brave knights defending against marauding Saracens, for example, or the casual dismissal of the leaders of the so-called Indian mutiny against 19th century British rule as bloodthirsty barbarians. There were other Muslims in the school, mostly from Britain's shrinking empire, But they were no different from me. They all came from a similar type of secularized background. And despite our resentment at the depiction of Islam and the casual uh, dislike or distaste for Islam that was prevalent throughout uh, the schools of that period, our presence in England just proved that modern civilization was entrenched firmly in the West. Uh, Our Islamic past may have been glorious, but it was just that, the past. The future was in the West. The more West, the better. And in my last year at school, which was 1964, I just was dreaming how to (laughs) escape and go to the United States. 1964, I landed in Boston. I went to MIT. And this was the beginning of the great cultural revolutions of the period. And I think it was impossible for any person that age, irrespective of your cultural, political uh, background, even if you're an outsider, not to be swept up by the convulsions of the time. And I remember participating enthusiastically in teachings and all kinds of uh, protests. But that that was a period also when the black empowerment movement in America was reaching its, its apogee. And it also demonstrated to me that you can't really divorce the the spiritual, spiritually charged nature of at least certain aspects of the uh, black civil rights movement. And it occurred to me that religion can play a part in effecting great social change. Martin Luther King himself was a churchman, but I must say a far cry from the establishment types I met here. And Malcolm X was in fact a practicing uh, Muslim. So I began to think again about Islam as a force for social, social change and social transformation. Throughout the nineteen seventies, uh, like many young people, I, think I was preoccupied with with a search, as it were, for a meaningful ethic to fill the spiritual and moral void of the times. The nineteen seventies were really like that. I mean, there was a great hollowness amongst. Uh, the youth, partly to find, I suppose, an antidote to the excesses of the counterculture. And all of these currents and thoughts sort of crystallized in the unlikely setting of 1976 London, which was then situated in the middle of a disintegrating British economy beset by labor strife and the first whiffs of hyperinflation. But between April and June of 1976, London was a host to something called the World of Islam Festival." Now you might think, what has a festival got to do with, with rediscovery of, of uh, one's Islamic perspective or consciousness? But that was really one of the <coughs> landmark events, I think, in post-war London's cultural history. It, was, it took over the whole of the city. I mean, every major museum, every gallery. Even the universities gave up their lecture halls to examine Islam from its uh, all of its perspectives and to show the richness and diversity of Islam's culture and civilization to the West. And a very significant aspect of it is that it focused on the unity of Islamic civilization across its component uh, elements of nations, languages, and cultures. The festival itself was... I say it was animated by the spirit of one of Islam's great unsung heroes of modern times, the Raja of Mahmudabad. He had helped to support the initial idea for the project and was instrumental in creating the conditions for its establishment, although he had died three years before it actually came came about. And when I was in London here in 1968, because of this unfortunate event that (laughs) was taking place in LAC, there was this dispute between the administration, the Radical Socialist Students Federation. The college was closed down for nearly, ni- nearly six months of that year. So I had plenty of time on my hand, and I gravitated towards the presence of the Rajah of Mahmoudabad, <coughs> who had moved uh, to London. I, he had a small house next to London's uh, Regent's Park Mosque. But the Raja himself uh, was a central figure in the Muslim movement of India. He was the uh, chief financier of the Muslim League and was one of the uh, founders of Pakistan. I think one of those who enabled the founding of Pakistan. But he was also a very deeply idealistic and egalitarian person and committed definitely and firmly to Islam as a force for social good. For example, he used to, he used to really feel uh, complete, um, he was deeply idealistic and egalitarian, and he, he went around frequently wearing coarse homespun cloth, uh, barefoot, maybe to express his solidarity with the poor. In many ways, he was the Muslim Gandhi. But <sighs> this, this, this uh, perspective of Islam had a very powerful effect on me, and because it combined a deep loyalty to the faith as a religious practice but also uh, in his life he embodied the reforming and the uh, potential uh, for change embedded in the ethical uh, dimensions of Islam. The festival itself has subsequently been analyzed and has been criticized for being elitist and insufficiently representative of the social and economic dimensions of Islam. It was m- mainly under the aegis of, of uh, what were called the traditionalists. These people were Muslims, such as the philosopher Sayyid Hussein Nasser, uh, the art historian Titus Burckhardt, and the mu- museum uh, curator Martin Links, who were all practicing Muslims. But they had a very important uh, role in the organization of the festival and gave this uh, universalist aspect to Islam. They basically linked the creative vitality in Islamic civilization, primarily to its spiritual core, and the drive, as it were, that propelled the ordinary believer to seek, find, and then express the manifestations of divinity in the outer world. They were all followers of the French metaphysician and subsequent uh, Muslim convert, René Guénon. And time, of course, traditionalist thought has not really been free of controversy, either then or now, but uh, uh, it's sort of eclectic understanding of Islam and other, world, and other world religions, and its assertion that all great religious traditions meet at some commonly shared higher principle of spirituality. But at the time in 1976, it was a very unexpected, and in my case, a, a refreshing treatment of Islam. So without actually seeking it, I stumbled across an entirely new perspective on religion. One no less resonant with the possibilities for the future and the gathering forces of political Islam which accelerated throughout the 1970s as Islamist movements began to rise in the Middle East and throughout the Muslim world. It is these two currents that have dominated my life since which is One current is the mystical inner dimension of the faith. And the other, the the outer political and social expressions of it. And the reason why I began to be concerned about the fate and the direction in which events are propelling Islam and its civilization is because the former, the spiritual aspects of religion, has been eclipsed, and Islam is now becoming increasingly if not exclusively, understood in political and doctrinal terms, rather than with with, uh, resonance with its inner dimensions. A few years after this festival, the world was turned on its head by the Iranian revolution. Political Islam burst on the global stage and whatever we may think of it, the Shiite-led revolution embodied the hopes and fears millions of people around the world. And meanwhile, a parallel upheaval was engulfing the world of Sunni Islam. With the jihad against the Soviet invasion of, of Afghanistan, it marked the rise of an extreme brand of military Islamism. The people of the world, and Muslims in particular, were confronted with a host of questions and assertions about the proper place of Islam in society. Must Muslims strive for the establishment of an Islamic State. Is a Sharia compatible with modernity, democracy, and human rights? I dare say that every Muslim has been exercised in one form or another by the ascendance of political Islam, whether recoiling in alarm, perplexed and anxious, or enthusiastically embracing a more assertive role for religion and politics. For a long time, the two worlds of Islam, the outer world of political and social action, and the inner world of spiritual and moral realization, seemed entirely at odds with each other. One was angry at Islam's subordination, insistent on recognition and power, on challenging the status quo. The other was serene, introspective, and immersed in the intangible. The canvas of the first was societies and nations of the second, the self, and the individual. Rituals of worship in Islam were supposed to be the bridge that connected those disparate worlds, but they were quickly bent to suit the demands of one or the other. Mosques became recruiting grounds for jihadis, while the repressive governments <coughs> manipulated Islam, often by denouncing and demonizing other Muslim groups to cement their control and power the essential unity of Islam was greatly diminished if not quite yet destroyed people could no longer move effortlessly between the two realms of Islam Muslims divided into warring sects and the closing of the Muslim mind was an inevitable consequence of the growing significance of an intolerant and exceptionally doctrinaire strain of Islam Wahhabism cynically fueled by the huge largesse of Saudi Arabia. The Islamists have been strengthened by the momentous crises that have shaped the Muslim world over the past few decades. As I became more involved in politics through writings, speeches, and then as an active member of the opposition to the Ba'athist regime in Iraq, and subsequently as a cabinet minister between 2003 and 2006, it became clear that few of the Muslims I encountered in the public arena were concerned with the spiritual aspects of the religion. In practice, Islamists behaved no differently and often worse than their secular counterparts. Abuse of power, squandering or outright theft of public resources, and massive corruption were all endemic to Islamist-led governments. Their brand of Islam was largely devoid of any deep ethical content and was at odds with my understanding of Islam's own legacy. The preoccupation of the vast majority of Muslims with their outer material conditions are often just survival. is not in any way reprehensible, but it is deficient. Crises that Muslims face cannot be addressed solely by the political, social, or jurisprudential aspects of the religion. The moral education of individual Muslims does not much interest the leaders of the Muslim world, whether in power or in opposition, in mainly Muslim lands or in the West. Muslims may have been overwhelmed by the scale of the real or imagined disasters befalling them, the legacy of colonialism and Western intervention and their relative underperformance in a globalizing world. But that should not have prevented them from holding a mirror to themselves. And that mirror would have revealed a fading of their own civilizational drive, an increasingly obvious indifference to and often abandonment of the ethical and spiritual foundations of their faith. Over the past 30 years, the divisions within, is, within Islam have triggered in, incredible paroxysms of violence. Sectarian, ethnic, and racial hatreds have trumped consistently the ideal of Islamic unity. The Iran-Iraq war of the 1980s and the internecine struggle that accompanied the withdrawal of the Soviets from Afghanistan are a few such examples. But it was in post-Saddam Iraq, however, that the full extent of the the dissonance between Islamic political and religious life was laid bare. The murderous violence that was unleashed by radical, Wahhabi-inspired Islamists, were sanctioned with laborious jurisprudential justifications from leading religious figures. Saudi-based clerics applauded the egregious acts of violence and mayhem perpetrated by the Al-Qaeda terrorists in Iraq, especially when they targeted the Shia, a heretical group in Wahhabi demonology. Those rulings were accepted by many Muslims around the world and they legitimated the slaughter of innocent civilians. The brutal response of the Shiite militias that followed in its wake, a counter-terror in its own right, targeted the Sunnis of Iraq. Hundreds of thousands of Iraqis were killed, and millions displaced or exiled. The country descended into chaos and strife. Political Islamists of all stripes jettisoned entire ideologies, supposedly based on an Islamic reading of politics and ethics. Ideologies, I might add, for which many of their militants had given their lives. They were all scrambling in decent haste to cozy up to Washington, and to gain whatever political advantage they could in the post-Saddam order. And when I say Islamists, I mean Islamists of all stripes. Not only are the Shia Islamist parties at fault here, but also, in a little-known fact, the branch, the Iraqi branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, the Iraqi Islamic Party, was one of the principal supporters of the coalition and provided the needed backing that the, um, that the, um, the, the Anglo-American alliance <coughs> required to maintain a kind of cover for their activities. Not once during my entire three-year stint in the Iraqi government did I witness an Islamist party, Sunni or Shia, promote an Islamic cause that they had earlier propounded in their manifestos. Gone were their proposals for an Islamic economy, an Islamic system of laws, or an Islamic state. The ruling parties were driven by an obsessive desire for material gain and power, and a desire to keep in the good graces of Washington. It was a sad and dispiriting spectacle. To me, it was sufficient evidence that Muslims had become divorced from the well of Islamic ethics, the search for a felicitous life, a harmonious and just society, and moral virtue, which in its turn is a pathway to the unseen. Isn't the entire Quranic message for a believing Muslim addressed to those who believe in the unseen? It was there that I began to systematically reflect this dilemma and the crisis that affected Iraq ended up in my writing this book on the occupation of Iraq. Iraq you, you may know is one of the most invaded countries in modern times. At last count it was invaded five times since World War One. I. I think that beats all the world record and I wanted to know why we ended up in this, this situation. The other, the other dimension was how can this magnificent panorama which was the civilization of Islam, descend into this uh, terrible uh, condition where Muslims were at each other's throats for uh, dubious sectarian reasons. And I wanted to understand the factors behind the decay of the spirit of Islam and what the future might entail if that process is not halted or reversed. Islamic civilization, I believe, has its own perspectives on the relations between God and man, the individual and the group, the powers and responsibilities of the state, the appropriate balance between human rights and duties, as well as the nature of justice, freedom, and equality. In many ways, such views are different from those held by other civilizations, and in particular, from the dominant global world order. And the reason, in my mind, is very simple, because almost by definition, Islamic civilization has to acknowledge the role of the transcendent, or the sacred, or, or divine, we call it what you will. And if that element is absent, then Islam cannot modernize without diminishing the integrity of the faith. In classical Islamic doctrine, for example, individual autonomy is constrained by the individual's ultimate dependence. God. As such, the entire edifice of individual rights, derived either from man's natural state or a secular, ethical, or political theory, is alien to Islamic thought. The individual Muslim generates within himself or herself the virtues of the community and vice versa. The result, ideally, is a bond between the individual and the group with little possibility of ethical atomization at the individual level or an oppressive conformity at the group level. The crisis in Islamic civilization, I believe, arises in part from the fact that Muslims have been unable to chart their own path into contemporary life. Islam as a religion or even as a remnant of a civilization has never fully surrendered to the demands of a desacralized world. Those who rule over Muslims may behave atrociously, continuing a venerable tradition of misrule, violence, and corruption that has long plagued the Muslim world. But tantalizing thoughts of what might be, still reverberate among the masses, and even among some of the elite. In the past, the Sharia connected Muslims' outer world with their inner realities. The eclipse of Sharia by secular, civil, commercial, and criminal law severed that connection. Some people see a desacralized world as a fertile ground for nurturing the private faith of the individual. Other religious traditions, especially those that form the basis of Western civilization, long ago withdrew from the public arena, effectively putting their seal of approval on the separation of church and state. But Islam, I believe, cannot easily coexist with a political order that takes no heed of its inner dimensions. The integrity of Islam requires a delicate balance between the individual's spirituality and the demands of the community as a whole. Islam's encounter with the West and the ascendant forces of modernity have made deep inroads into the outer world of Islam, and equally important into the minds of Muslims. Some may deny it, and fight numerous rare-guard actions. But this reality cannot be effaced until Muslims confront another harsh fact. All civilizations have an inner and outer aspect, an inner world of beliefs, ideas, and values that inform the outer aspects of institutions, laws, government, and culture. But the inner dimensions of Islam no longer have the significance or power to shape the outer world in which most Muslims live. Most Muslims, knowingly or not, have lost sight of the centrality of the sacred to their historic civilization. The Muslim world has become effectively desacralized and that has changed how Muslims think, believe, and behave. Islam's outer expressions, its laws, institutions, governing structures, economic and and cultural principles Even its architecture and and town planning have been in constant retreat In consequence. The idea of the nation state challenged the traditional notion of the Islamic polity. The cohesiveness of families was threatened by shifty economic foundations and the advent of women's rights. The Sharia had to concede to the new canons of secular, civil, and criminal law. The open marketplaces of bazaars and traditional exchange patterns gave way to the international cooperation, interest-based finance, and foreign investment. Those are the arenas in which the debate about the future of Islam is typically waged. But the answer to that question of whether a uniquely Islamic order can ever be recreated again does not lie only there. The insatiable pursuit of ever-rising standards of living coupled with an almost fetishistic belief in science and technology is a nearly universal condition. The West and the entire post-modern global order has accepted secularization as an inevitable consequence of increasing wealth and power. That same recipe is now being offered to Muslims. Liberal reformers in the Muslim world and their allies beyond are in effect calling for the Christianization of Islam, concede the public arena to secularism, and acknowledge that the break between Islam's sacred interior world and the profane external world is definitive and legitimate. The reformers, advocates of Muslim liberal democracy, are at least honest in that they forthrightly call for the wholesale adoption of the institutions and processes modernity. But their vision of Islamic civilization I believe is empty. A vague spirituality wafting over a society with a shallow cultural distinctiveness. One that is effectively merged with the dominant order. The radical Islamists on the other hand <clears throat> and even the rank and file of those so-called rationalist Muslims who insist that Islam has all the, el- has all the elements of Western style humanism already embedded in it suffer from a different conceit, namely that a happy compromise can be fashioned between Islam and modernity simply by running modern ideas through the filter of the Sharia. What is acceptable will be embraced and what is not will be rejected. That approach has been entertained for more than a century. In fact, I would say longer than that if anybody reads the early debates of our great Muslim thinkers of the 19th century, it basically repeats the same old story. So it is not something new that the the rational Muslims are calling for. That Islam has in it all the elements of modernity and humanism. That approach, as I said, has been entertained for over a century and has produced neither material progress nor the foundations of a revivified Islamic civilization. The fundamental conundrum facing both rationalists and radicals is that the forces of modernity are the product of a different and ascendant civilizational order. Those forces can only be internalized successfully if they are refashioned and then transcended in a uniquely Islamic framework. Such a framework, I believe, must be rooted explicitly in the Islamic virtues of justice, moderation, the respectful accommodation of other cultures and religions, and the rejection of oppression and gross inequalities. Those immutable principles are already spelled out. They are milestones for the believer's pathways to a fulfilling inner life. They should guide the ethical rereading of the Sharia that will not only revitalize Islam's outer world, but bring Islam closer to providing a new, constructive, and potentially appealing response to the growing problems facing humanity, including environmental degradation, the coarsening of public life, economic inequity among nations and peoples, and overconsumption. The Sharia has traditionally been pitted against modern practices. values, with the implication that the Sharia should give way to the prevailing ethos. Or the Sharia has been seen in entirely static terms, a blueprint for reviving some golden age of Islam. The latter, of course, is the approach of so-called fundamentalist Muslims. But an Islam reimagined along the lines I've just outlined can go beyond the travesty that passes for what is Islamic on Islamic architecture just because there heart is there or Islamic banking because it supposedly it eschews interest. And that kind of revitalization that is rooted in the ethical principles of the religion, it can produce, I believe, institutions, enterprises, for example, in business that can, they can focus on risk-taking, and cooperative <laughs> finance, and they can also push for technological innovations that focus on, for example, conservation, energy conservation. In the hard sciences, Islam can privilege research that seeks to reveal the unseen substructures that underlie the physical world. What the great theoretical physicist David Bohm called the implicate order. This has not been investigated with with the necessary energy, I believe, simply because it counters the prevailing methods of scientific inquiry. Islam, I think, seen from that perspective, can open up entirely new vistas to find unity and wholeness in the natural world. Muslims, finally, cannot simply partake of the technological fruits of modern civilization while simultaneously rejecting or questioning its premises. That makes them nothing more than inert consumers of the effort and creativity of others, even if they continue to smugly assert the superiority of their spiritual ways. That is the ultimate fallacy of the Islamists. Alternatively, Muslims might choose to package the products of Western civilization in ways that are culturally or politically acceptable to their own societies. They can even participate in the dominant civilization order, but risk fatally undermining whatever remains of their basic identity and autonomy. That appears to be the path of the Gulf States, which have exuberantly embraced a frantic hyper-modernity that is scantily garbed in Islamic idioms. This path also appeals to those of the professional classes who view their Islam as little more than a cultural ornament. If Muslims want an outer life that is an expression of their innermost faith, they must rescue their own civilization from years or decades or centuries now of inactivity, lassitude and indifference. Such an achievement requires overcoming conditions of great imbalance and adversity. The challenge is not insurmountable but it will test to the limit Muslims' commitment to Islam as a complete way of life. Muslims must invent a new means of expressing the outer dimensions of their religion a new sharia, as it were, ethics-based rather than rules-based, tilted towards social action rather than preserving the status quo. Muslims must also confront the twin temptations of seeing the sharia either as a malleable garb for whatever modernity throws their way or as a fixed creed of incredibly detailed and often irrelevant rulings. I have no doubt that Islam as a religion or as a code of outer conduct and transactions will continue into the indefinite future. But I cannot say the same about Islamic civilization, a universe that is recognizably Islamic and that draws its vitality and inspiration from the inner and outer aspects of Islam and the bridge that connects the two. It is that world that is in danger of disappearing. Thank you.
0: Or do you want to look? okay yeah okay um, if one or two people need to leave uh, okay I, I think plenty of uh, food for thoughts and uh, let us uh, if we could if people are leaving please leave as quickly as possible I'll take uh, a number. Uh, I've got a number of questions I'll, I'll take two together uh, Mr. Lawyer, the gentleman in the middle and then the gentleman at the back first yeah please sir Where's the... Uh, please, yeah, be a bit quicker with those mics. Okay.
1: Yes, Thank you very much. My name is Solomon. I'm a student here at the LSE. And uh, it's good we've talked about Islamic civilizations. Uh, Professor Huntington has written about the clash of civilizations. And one of the quotes he has in his book is that the intervention of Western civilizations in other civilizations leads to conflict. In light of what you see in the world today, September 11, the cartoon controversy, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, do you agree that Islamic civilizations are in a clash with Western civilizations? You have lived in both worlds, and I believe you could give us a good answer. Thank you.
0: Thanks very much, Solomon. Could you pass the microphone back to the chat behind you? Two, to, to then, uh, okay.
3: Please. I have a question on: What is your opinion of Malaysia's civilizational Islam, and do you see that as a model that can be used in the Arab world? So, could you ask that question again? I don't think everybody heard. What is your view of civilization, Malaysia's civilization, Malaysia. of the Islam Hadhari, and do you see that as a effective model for development in the Arab world?
0: So two questions there. Was Sam Huntington right? Or not?
2: (laughs) Uh,
0: not And on Malaysia? uh,
2: Regarding the clash of civilizations thesis, which I don't really subscribe to, because it assumes that civilizations are of an equal status. You're talking about an Islamic world that is really uh, in a completely uh, uh, reduced uh, power, vis-à-vis the dominant order. Can
0: you speak up a bit? Okay, sorry.
2: Uh, I was saying that the the clash of civilizations thesis has an underlying assumption that that there is some kind of parity or equality between civilizations. I mean, if you look at the reality, the hard socioeconomic facts behind the Islamic world, you'll find that it's a shadow in terms of its power and uh, and, uh, scale when compared to let's call it Western civilization or the the global order. The entire GDP of the Muslim world doesn't account for more than 13% of, that, uh, of the West, defined as the United States and the European Union. So we're talking about uh, different scales, different, different leagues. The, the threat that comes from, from Islam cannot be from that uh, of a large state actor. The largest state in the Muslim world in terms of its uh, economic resources is probably Turkey or Saudi Arabia, depending on the oil price. These are at best medium-sized powers. So from wh- whichever perspective you look at it, from the perspective of resources, from the uh, perspective of uh, technological output, from the perspective of of, uh, uh, state power, there is no such thing as uh, a champion of Islam on the global stage. And if you think in these terms, there there are uh, major powers that uh, underpin, as it were, the major world civilizations. The West, broadly uh, spoken of, is amply championed by the U.S. and the European Union. China now in one way or another I suppose, embodies the Confucian ethics of, uh, of Asia. India, Hinduism is now uh, practically contemporary with the state of, uh, state of India, the subcontinent of India. But Islam does not have such a state. does not have a state actor of a sufficient s- size and scale to act as a serious uh, threat. The threat that comes from Islam is from non-state actors, not from state actors. So that thesis, I think, falls flat once you're subjected to, to hard uh, socioeconomic analysis. Uh, also, Islam doesn't have the kind of uh, status that, uh, that uh, uh, Christianity has in the form of the Vatican state. The Vatican state represents, is a state by all reckonings. It's, uh, uh, it has a seat on all the major international conclaves, but it represents a world faith. Islam does not have that it may develop the capability of becoming both a a revitalized civilization if this chimera of an Islamic state that stretches across nations and cultures ever comes about, uh, which is highly, highly improbable in my lifetime. So I think the thesis may have sounded right in the 1990s, but breaks down when subject to detailed, detailed assessment. Uh, regarding Islam Islam in Malaysia, I think it's really to do with perhaps more with domestic Malaysian politics than to do with an attempt to revitalize the wellsprings, as it were, of Islamic, uh, Islamic civilization. It has a tendency towards moderation. It has a tendency towards uh, refashioning uh, modern concepts in ways that are acceptable to a generally conservative society. But apart from that, I don't see much uh, uh, vitality in it. Uh, Indonesia is probably a better, a better place to start because in many ways they are coming to terms with the political implications of, uh, of accommodating Islamist trends in politics. And so far, I think uh, it's not yet underpinned by, by a, a kind of all-embracing ideology or, or worldview, but it could move in that direction.
0: Okay, I've got two more hands that come up. Uh, there's a lady here and there's a gentleman here. So we take two again together. you <laughs> could just bring that
1: to Yeah, please. It's, it's more um, a comment on what has just been uh, said about Islamic civilization and whether there is a clash, uh, clash of civilizations between the Islamic and the Western one. And what what I would like to say is. I don't think there is so much. it's so much a question of that uh, the is, is, uh, Western civilization is so big and has such a lot of power that there is, in comparison, uh, very little to say about Islamic civilization. I think it's more a clash of ignorance rather than a clash of civilizations because Islamic civilization goes back a long way. A lot of what is in place today, even within Western civilization, has its past within Islamic civilization. If we just take the example of medicine and astronomy, mathematics, uh, a lot of that has its basis and its origin even in Islamic civilization. Ibn Rushd and Ibn Sina, it all goes back to that. In fact, even before that, I would think it goes back to the Indian civilization. So that there is a huge history of Islamic civilization. But I think there is a great ignorance about it, and maybe because it has not been brought out quite as much it's not there in schools it's not been taught oh up till now really and maybe if that was remedied, there would be more awareness of quite how far back it uh, it really ca- it goes, and really that there is as much power there. but maybe the political uh, the whole political uh, you know arena of it is where the uh, uh, question and the issue lies more than whether there w- there is anything within Islamic civilization or not today. Thank Thanks you
0: very much. And a, a gentleman here,
3: yeah, please. Sir, so, uh, you talked about non-state actors. I just grew up in the third world countries like Pakistan, and uh, actually, but the feeling the general public have is that the the states are actually the representatives of the West. The, they are not actually the democratically elected leaders. You take example, right from the Saudi Arabia to the whole Gulf, to the right, to the, to the Pakistan. Uh, whenever there is some multi-dictator, the sport is the full from West. And there is a growing phenomenon that actually, the, these are the non-state actors which are getting roots from the common society. Because the states, they are, they are thinking that the states are not their representatives in actual practice and the non-state actors are coming up and they are actually patronizing the whole society.
2: Uh, regarding the first point that you made, I mean this, uh, I must say, frequently comes up is that Islamic civilization about the, the way in which Islam interacted with other uh, world civilizations uh, and then the case of, uh, of Andalusia, the exchange of, of ideas and uh, technologies and Advances across frontiers. But this really m- makes the point is that when you talk about Islamic civilization, you're really talk mainly talking in the past tense. You're not talking about great creative vitality that, that's peaked sometime in the, in the 12th, 13th century and appears to be to have been in significant retreats. since then. Most of the world in which we live, modernity, I must say, owes nothing. To Islam, in the sense that Islam has not contributed to, to the main features of the modern world, it has been left by the by the by the wayside. If you look at the roots, yes, but if you look at certain certain interactions and exchanges between the West and Islam, you can you can see that it happened by osmosis. There's no doubt about but the But what we're dealing with is a world that has very little of it that is connected with with the uh, the foundations of the Islamic worldview. And that is what I mean uh, by Islam, the civilization of Islam is in crisis. It has been unable to generate uh, values, concepts, institutions, processes that have any significance in the modern world, apart from the aspects of political Islam and the uh, religious life of the pious and the observant. uh, The vast majority of people who are embedded in this postmodern world do not relate to any of the aspects of Islam, which uh, they find uh, as helping, as it were, in the creative vitality that underpins the human project. So if what I'm what I was uh, uh, referring to in my talk, and as well as it comes out more in the book, is that these these aspects, the vitality that used to be so palpable a thousand years ago, even four hundred years ago, has been in constant retreat since the advent of modernity. So either Islam throws up its hands, and says that in terms of the outer world, we really have very little that can be attractive to humanity beyond what post-modernity offers, and that we become a private retreat into the private space, as most of the world's spiritual traditions have. Or you find an expression of it that is creative, vital, constructive. That allows Muslims to live an outer life that is uh, that resonates with their inner condition, as well as an outer life that is creative and vital and that's attractive for others. It is this where I think the crisis arises. Not that uh, uh, Ibn Sina or Ibn Rushd or, or all these great figures of the past. That's the problem: is that they are the figures of the past. Regarding the nation-state, I think this is a fundamental problem in the in the Uh, political world of Islam. Islam, I don't think, has come to terms with the nation-state. It has not acknowledged that the nation-state is the the appropriate mechanism for ordering the political life of Muslims, as Muslims. Uh, The idea of uh, citizenship, the idea of geographic states that are ethnically based by and large, and I think if you look at the modern nation-state, with one or two exceptions, it is very much an ethnic project there are minorities here and there. I mean, Europe itself, the patchwork of states that emerged out of the World War One, and then after the collapse of the post-World War II Soviet Empire in Yugoslavia, ended up in ethnic states. Now, an ethnic-based nation-state is, I think, antithetical to the uh, to the principles that underlie uh, Islamic politics. Now, we have to come up with a different formula that will express the the if that is the desire of people to have a formula that goes beyond ethnicity and beyond language and culture. Because Islam, in its political manifestations, cannot be reduced, I think, to, it can accommodate be accommodated in a nation state, but it cannot coexist comfortably with it over the long term. The gentleman
0: the back. Yeah. E- Edward Davey, LSE.
2: As an academic,
0: a historian, and a politician, how would you evaluate Barack Obama's recent Cairo speech, in terms of its academic rigor, its historical analysis, and its political acumen. Did everybody hear that? Yeah? Oh, okay. The words Barack Obama appeared and everybody smiled. I noticed that. That's, that often happens these days, you notice. Ali, why don't you pick that question up quick.
2: I mean, I think obviously it's a sea change uh, from what went on before. And it, it showed uh, an understanding uh, of at least on the concerns of Muslims. And it addressed, I think, it was more in terms of the package, the way it was uh, manifested in, a, in, in Cairo uh, and the frequent references to the Quran, which went down very well amongst Muslim audiences. But I think by and large, people are just waiting to see whether it's backed up by real changes. And here there are one or two key tests, and you just have to wait and see if these changes are anything more than more than cosmetic. Uh, of course, Barack Obama, I think, has has had experience, not only by the fact that uh, his his father was a nominal Muslim, but he's had experience with uh, various uh, you know categories of Muslims when he was at college and at university. And from my from my my own experience, and I've met several people who were very close to him in his days uh, at both uh, in Columbia and uh, later on at Harvard, who 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 were either uh, American Muslims or Muslims from other parts of the world. And they may have been, some of them were very, very close to him. So he's obviously affected by their concerns. But whether this translates into a change, fundamental change of policy, is another matter.
0: Okay. Uh, who had the. Mic- there was a microphone. He's got the microphone. Yes, gentleman here. And then I'll come over here and I'll come back out. Yeah, please, sir. Uh,
3: thank you very much for your talk. A lot of uh, what you said, uh, uh, I understood. And, and believe in, in terms of uh, that institutes uh, and groups in the Middle East or, or in the Muslim world in general are trying to uh, superimpose an Islamic image on the nation that they reside in uh, without the spirit of it being there. Uh, but, you, but the one thing that I didn't understand uh, was that you said they were trying to promote a laws-based Islamic uh, society rather than an ethics-based Islamic society from what I understand is that Islamic law uh, one of its its intent is to one of its intentions, out of one out one out of five is there to preserve religion and religion, life, uh, honor, also wealth. But doesn't that provide, I mean theoretically speaking, an infrastructure uh, that uh, promotes ethics? Because you cannot really get inside people, you cannot uh, provide a psychiatrist for every individual in Muslim society. But you can just provide laws that allow certain values to grow in people naturally. As soon as you give people the proper effects, the causes will, will automatically come out. Uh, I hope you understood what I was trying to get at. Thank you.
0: Just take that as one question. I've got a lot of hands. I'm going to try and bring around to as many people as possible. Please. Well, uh, I mean,
2: what, I'm, what I was trying to say is that you cannot take the inherited, the legacy of the Sharia in its detailed rulings as being the entirety of the manifestation of Islam's ethical foundations. The uh, the whole corpus of the Sharia has grown over centuries and some of the detailed rulings involved in that counter in my mind more basic principles like principles of fairness, uh, equity, and justice. And you can go across the board And find out that the rulings, that the way in which Sharia derives its rulings, is not necessarily going back to the first principles of virtues, as it were, embedded in the Quran. They go back to predecessors. So it's like a whole uh, mountain, as it were, of legislative rules that have grown over time, with some 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 uh, uh, changes taking place from time to time. But the fundamental corpus of it is basically a continuity of rulings that have gone on for a very long time. What has, what, has, what has happened recently, I think, when I say recently, in the last few decades, is something much more dangerous. While in the past, the by and large the Sharia was quite flexible, it was very, very uh, infrequent that you got firm rulings about anything. There were certain core rulings that stayed over time. Most of the schools, most of the main schools if you ask for detailed rulings for whatever case you might have been uh, exposed to most of the great fuqahas, most of the great uh, jurists would not comment would not give a specific ruling this has changed in the last 30 or 40 years primarily because of the rise of the wahhabist inflected schools they have basically legitimated the notion that you can get detailed rulings for every condition and circumstance that a Muslim can face. So you have this entire corpus of laws and rules now that govern the most detailed behavior. This was not the case before. It was very, very infrequent that you got fatwas being given by learned, learned jurists. And when I say you have to be careful about reforming the Sharia from that perspective, reforming it can very well lead to the opposite of what you want. Reform of the Sharia, in fact, was one of the main calls, one of the main cries of most of the Wahhabist inflected movements and the Salafis. So, reforming it in order to modernize it, you might very well get a different uh, outcome than than what you are seeking. I believe in order to use the Sharia as a constructive mechanism for revitalizing Islamic life and civilization, you have to go back to the ethical foundations in the Quran, not in the, not necessarily uh, rely on this entire corpus some of which I think is going beyond its, uh, its, its utility.
0: Well, I think I understood both the academic and moral justifications for your call for an, an Islam reimagined, a new framework. What I don't think I follow is how, you, how you're calling to actually practically implement that, or what institutions do you believe would actually be, the, be able to provide that transition? I'm just wondering, perhaps it's through my own misunderstanding but do you think you could just dig into some depth thanks
2: i mean you're right this is not a this is not a project that you can do as a result of you know seizing political power and then forcing changes in the law which is what most revolutionaries or radical Islamists think you should do this is a, a civilization process that can take place over decades if not centuries the, the, the there are certain key aspects to it I think one of them is that you have to re Uh, refocus on the ethics of Islam. And and by ethics I mean that there has to be rulings, there has to be an entire jurisprudential basis for changing what we think are uh, rulings that are basically deleterious to the the vitality of Islam. As I see it, Islam is composed of it's really a tripod. One one leg of the tripod we call it dogma and doctrine. The other leg is the jurisprudential rulings and the Sharia, which dominate the outer life of transactions and Muslims' uh, religious observances. The third leg though is, is the uh, spiritualized ethics. That has been in retreat for the last two or three hundred years. Very, very few people now recognize the centrality of the spiritualized ethical systems that were Im- embedded in the past in, for example, Sufi orders or in chivalric movements for two worlds which governed the entire work patterns of people. People's daily lives were ordered by the, these highly spiritualized ethical actions in their workplace. Uh, I'm not saying go back to the, the you know, to the patterns of the 19th or the 18th century. These have been destroyed, and I think destroyed forever. But you have to come up with new mechanisms and new methods by which the ethical aspects of conduct, rediscovering, as it were, the virtues of Islam within, within this Quranic framework, in order to overcome this lopsidedness that has emerged in the last several decades, where the entire focus is either on dogma and doctrine, or on uh, the uh, the outer aspects of the sharia, and uh, jurisprudential rulings. It's a very, very long process. Now, for example, to re-energize the creative forces in Islam is not something that you can plan for or plot for, but you have to create an enabling environment. If you want to create an alternative, To being overwhelmed by modernity if you don't do that then then islam will retreat into a private space it will not disappear obviously as a faith in fact the opposite seems to be taking place but in terms of its outer manifestations it has that process has to start at some point it's beginning in in some cases you can see it for example in some of the mass movements uh, gulen movement in turkey in some ways is addressing this problem is that it's trying to Provide what most people want, which is a high-quality education, but anchored in the ethical dimensions of Islam. And people want to go to these schools not because they're Islamic, but because they're successful. These mass movements, these these uh, movements that cross the spectrum, I think are, are are essential to the revitalization of Islam. And when I mention things like, you know, uh, research in sciences looking at wholeness, looking at larger orders than the way in which modern science fragments and disaggregates is another direction in which is can go but things are not not necessarily moving anymore. so it will take i think a great deal of effort to revitalise islam to the point where it is able to uh, continue to offer a serious alternative to its adherents than modernity post-modernity. Okay, I'm uh,
0: conscious. Uh, I, I'll, I'll, bring, I'll, I'll bring you. I'm conscious. I've, I've not asked anybody up in the balcony. So Hamlet has arisen, and uh, so if you'd like to ask your question without a microphone. gentleman here has been waiting a long time, so I want to bring you in. Sir, sir. Uh,
1: my name is uh, Kasim Awan and I am from uh, you Pakistan, put the mic
0: closer up uh, you?
1: Pakistan, Zindabad. And my question is uh, that by modernization,
0: do you mean uh, like uh, alcoholism, having children without marriage? Or by modernization, you mean having uh, a better s- system of distribution of income in the society, by having a better system of agriculture, by having a better system of uh, communications? If you mean the second one, then I think Islam is totally
1: compatible with this uh, mode of modernization. And regarding this clash of civilizations, I think this is not a clash of civilization. This is just a clash of
0: interest uh, between different countries. Like uh, an army came to your country uh, in search of WMDs, but their real purpose was uh, this uh, oil. And this is not a clash of civilization, basically, this is a clash of interests. Okay. Uh, can you pre- i take one more question here. A gentleman's had his hand up almost since he sat down, so you better ask your question, sir. Please.
3: My name is Christoph von Lutis, and my question is how do you interpret the influence the ruling families in some strongly Islamic states could take or are taking on the development? of Islam's civilization also in terms of social equality.
0: He's also holding a copy of your book there, so I think you better give him a good answer as well. Okay, there's three to go, see how we go. I think we're probably gonna call it to an end there because I know a lot of other hands have gone up, so we'll begin where we want to begin then, Ali. Okay. Okay. Uh,
2: Regarding the reformations here of the 16th and 17th century, I don't think there's been many calls that Islam should undergo the same kind of reformation. I hope it doesn't do that, simply because uh, 200 years of the reformation led to millions of people being killed in various wars of religion. Uh, I read that uh, the population of Germany at the beginning of the 30 Years' War was around 18 million. By the time it ended, it was around six. So it is not something that you would wish upon the Muslim world to have (laughs) that kind of reformation. Uh, As for the Catholic Church losing its power, and losing its authority, that happened over a long, long period of time. uh, the fact that, that it has some moral authority left is, I think, a vestige of, its, of, its, uh, of its, the way it has, has evolved. Over <coughs> it. In, in the case of Islam, it, trying to reform it in that sense, that is, to, to modernize it, quote-unquote, through various fatwas and so on, I think it's bound to fail. It's bound to fail as being tried because what you're, what you're doing is positing certain desired outcomes and then trying to force religion into it. Trying to squeeze, as it were, the way in which rulings are made, the way in which people's values uh, uh, evolve and, and, and become cemented, push them in a certain direction that's already predetermined. So th- you, you will get a great deal of resistance to that. And in fact, this is what has happened, for example, in Turkey. And Turkey has been, since the Ataturk uh, reforms, if you want to call them that, of the 1920s, it's been led by a determinedly secular Ruling, uh, ruling elite, the military bureaucratic elite that led Turkey. And it wasn't uh, secular in the Western sense, that is a separation of church and state. It was a determinately anti-Islamic program. 70, 80 years later, uh, it hasn't succeeded. So even in countries, uh, even in the, in the uh, former uh, republics of the, of the Soviet empire that were mainly Muslim, th- that kind of aggressive atheism has not succeeded in erasing the consciousness of Islam amongst the people or the loyalty that most people have to it. So you have to be careful when you talk about the reform and try to use sort of the analogy of the of the Western or the Christian experience, the Western Christian experience, and uh, try to uh, reflect it or project it on the Islamic world. Reform in the Islamic world is, is not something that uh, that can happen by a blueprint. It can it can happen only as a result of evolution and. Again, re-energizing the creative forces within within Islam. Uh, the second question, I think, you, I think I answered it in, in another context. But uh, I agree with you. It is not a clash of civilizations simply because of the scale, the dif- differential scale and power of the civilizations involved. So the thesis doesn't hold. It's like a giant fighting with a with a five-year-old. It just doesn't. Uh, the, the 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 scales are weighted against you. It is true that what's happened is that nation states are exerting their authority, projecting their power in the case of the Iraq war. And it is not a war between the West, Western world, the Muslim world, far from it. You can see that in nation state terms. But by and large, I think uh, it is the, the clash of civilization thesis had a certain attractiveness in the mid 90s because of the collapse of the Soviet Union and seemed to offer some kind of explanation as to the way in which conflicts uh, might arise in the future. But I think over time, th- there's been a great deal of, of uh, I would call it Islamophobic uh, uh, practices in many, many Western, Western, Western countries. But this, I think, hardly is a sort of a precursor to a world uh, clash between Islam and the West. So these things, you have to be careful how you extend them, extend their scope and extend their, uh, their, uh, their analysis. Uh, the nation-state, I mentioned again, I don't think in the long term is not compatible with Islamic political theory or with the idea of the political in Islam. Whether, but that doesn't mean it should be replaced or is going to be replaced. Uh, the third question regarding the influence of the ruling families. In the, there's no doubt that, that political power in Islam has always been personal power uh, Islamic rule in very way, many ways is personal rule. it is ruled by individuals or dynasties, it's never the rule of the demos as it were and uh, this is a, f- a, f- you know, a feature of Islamic history not necessarily of the necessary outcome of, uh, of Islam, Islam I think recognizes hierarchies and recognizes orders and recognizing uh, certain primacies but these, these, uh, these primacies in many ways have to be earned not something that is that is uh, uh, reserved as a matter of privilege for those who. But with that with that said, there are there are some some uh, ruling families and dynasties, I believe, that have the potential of evolving, I think, into a, into a quite a quite an acceptable form of uh, of Islamic rule. I'm thinking, for example, of Morocco. In time, I think the the kind of you can you can make all kinds of claims that the uh, the state in Morocco is, is is not totally democratic or is not uh, a total observer of, of the best international practice in human rights and so on. But that kind of rule, I think, has the potential of change and evolution and has, I think, above all, the power of uh, uh, legitimacy behind it. In many ways, uh, I think revolutionary change where personal or dynastic rule has been overturned in favor of some other form of rule the, the end result has been uniformly bad. If you look at the experience of, uh, of, uh, of Arab states that have gone through that, or even Iran. I won't say Iran is, is uniformly bad yet, but it certainly is not what people expected. Uh, if you ask uh, people in Libya, or if you ask people in Egypt, whether the, or in Iraq even, whether the natural evolution of dynasties could have ended in some kind of uh, a variant of an islamically acceptable acknowledged rule? I think the answer would be yes, and was certainly it's superior to the r- rule by the military, bureaucratic, and in, now in security uh, agencies that seems to be a feature of most of these countries. So yes, I think the influence of these ruling families can be, can be positive and good if they are rooted in, in a long, legitimate tradition in which there is an element of, of acceptance by by the population and there's an element of reciprocity between the two. I don't think this can apply though, to every monarchy or every ruling family in the Muslim world.
0: Okay, I'm conscious of the time. Uh, We've been here now for around 20 minutes and so I think I'm going to draw the the proceedings to a conclusion. In typical LSE fashion, the first thing I won't do is thank you for the speech but I will show you the book and outside, Ali will be doing a signing. Uh, we have to pay our mortgage, uh, even at interest rates as low as they are at the moment. Um, so Ali will be doing a book signing outside in the in the foyer for those those who would like to uh, both get a, a signed copy of that. So that's the plug. I, I I do 10% by the way for that. So just in case. In 1964, you said you escaped from English cooking and, and from the English school system. In 1969, you came back to the LSE and you found it closed. As you notice, it's still open in spite of swine flu. I won't mention swine flu again, by the way. Uh, I hope you'll return 30 years after 1965. It's been a good deal more productive and useful. As you see, we're still open for business, and it's been wonderful having you here this evening. And I'd like all of us to thank the speakers. Thank